All right. Welcome to the Story of the Buddha podcast. This is episode two or chapter two. Again, this is a chapter by chapter recap of the fantastic book Old Path White Clouds by Thich Nhat Hanh, covering the story of the Buddha's life. This is chapter two entitled Tending Water Buffaloes. Um, So yeah, at this point, um, this chapter kind of deals with Savasti, our buffalo boy, um, who is now a, uh, a brand new monk, a new monastic in the Buddha's order. So at this point in the story, uh, the Buddha has already sort of gone through his, his uh, phase of enlightenment and his sort of hero's journey which we'll go back to at a later point. We're going to get some of that backstory filled in. But at this point, in this chapter, the Buddha's already set up his monastic order of monks. Um, and Savasti, the buffalo boy who he met 10 years prior, is now, I think, around 20 years old and has just become a monk. And, and at the beginning of this chapter, um, and by the way, like I said, I'm going to come up with a theme, kind of a general theme for the chapter that I thought of. Uh, to kind of look at this chapter under that scope. And so the, the theme I came up with for chapter two is symbols. And I came up with that because basically there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of metaphor in this chapter, and especially gearing around the, the beginning of this chapter starts with the Buddha telling a story to his, uh, basically giving what they call a Dharma talk. And if you're not familiar with Buddhism, Dharma talk's essentially like a sermon um, or a lecture. I I like to think of it as a little bit deeper than just a lecture, but it's like a sermon if you're coming from Christian tradition um, where you're talking about uh, the Dharma or sort of the philosophy later on, the scripture around Buddhism. Um, So this is basically a... Um, a talk given by the Buddha and to his monks. And there's a lot of cool metaphor here. Basically, he uses this um, analogy of tending water buffaloes as a way of tending your mindfulness practice. And it's a really clever way and, and really um, a preview for the reader and the student uh, of meditation or the student of Buddhism into how, why, why the Buddha's teachings are so um, profound and relevant. And I think the first thing there, he knows his audience and he uses these metaphors and, and ties it into everyday activities. Uh, the writer of this book, Old Path White Clouds, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the world-famous Zen master, amazing writer, He's also great at this, just being able to really understand your audience and find a way to connect. And uh, so he uses this analogy of tending water buffaloes, and, and he kind of goes through, you know, how you uh, care for a water buffalo, finding water, uh, you know, uh, maybe you know stuff like you know creating smoke to avoid the. Uh, insects uh, to protect the buffalo, to be mindful of each one, um, 
And then equating that to how we must be mindful of ourselves, of our body, of our mind, our speech, our, our actions in the world. So basically the Buddha goes through this really cool, and I won't go through all of it, but just a really cool, this metaphor, this symbolism, um, and, and really in a, in a seamless way equating it to our daily practice and our bodies and our lives and all that. So I thought that was a really cool way to, to um, a really a really cool way to describe um, monastic practice or or, or uh, some of the deeper what will what will then become some of the deeper aspects of Buddhism. So he mentions things like the the four foundations of mindfulness, which we'll get into more later. Um, some of the core teachings of Buddhism, the, the four noble truths, the six sense organs and how they relate to our practice. And he, he uses these metaphors around how a, 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 someone would tend these water buffaloes, which is what Savasti, you know, our buffalo boy, uh, had done up until that point his whole life. Um, so not only is this great metaphor and really an introduction for us, the reader, and for Savasti to, to some of these deeper practices, these core foundations. Uh, and he didn't, and he kind of knew not to go in detail. He, I think at this point, the monks were pretty new, a lot of them. And it was just this nice way to like, it's almost a teaser of, of this is what we're going to get into later, a, a little deeper. And kind of immerse ourselves in these practices. And, and, and like I said, centered around these the four foundations of mindfulness, four noble truths, which is sort of the core tenet of Buddhism, and the six sense organs, uh, and how they relate. So, yeah, and I also thought it was a fantastic way to, um, you know, sort of bring Savasti into the group, and he, and even and as as it described this this talk, he it it said that the Buddha was. Was, was looking right at Savasti. So it's like this way of like, hey, you're this new monk. You don't know really anything, or you're, you're very green at this point, yet this is going to bring you right into the group. And I really thought that was a cool um, sort of symbolism as well. Like, hey, you're a part of us now. And I'm going to show you that by doing this talk uh, and also relating that like, hey, just because you're a a lowly, you know, like I said, at this time in India, there was a caste system that was pretty rigid, and and uh, Savasti was our buffalo boy was the lowest of the low. I believe they were called the untouchables because they were literally not allowed to touch those of higher class. And it was a way for the with this talk for the Buddha to say, "Hey, you're a part of us," and break down kind of those barriers even more, like we did in the earlier chapter. Um, which I thought also was a nice way to, to kind of let everyone know that, you know, not only are we all equal here, this, 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 I think one of the draws of Buddhism is the, the egalitarian uh, theme that goes throughout that, you know, it, it's kind of like there is no more of this rigid power uh, class system set up, or at least very little. Um, so anyway, yeah, just I thought it was a really cool way, and also a way for for the the Buddha to let you know in a subtle way let Savasti know that hey, even though you all you you know your main job and livelihood up until this point was was tending water buffaloes, that 
even that can be a teacher. And it's really this to, that points to this bigger theme of really any and everything can be your teacher when you're talking about um, Buddhism, meditation practice. I think anything can be your teacher, you know. Um, your suffering can be your teacher. Um, you know, dealing with, with those that those people in your life that may be difficult for you, that can be one of our, ironically, one of our greatest teachers. And, uh, and really anything, and even simple things, you know, uh, and that's why I kind of thought of this theme for this chapter being symbolism, because there's a lot of, you can really use anything if you have some creativity or just open-mindedness about things, which is another kind of core tenet of Buddhism, that you can really... Uh, everyday life can be this amazing teacher, you know, washing the dishes can be a great uh, lesson <laughs> in life. So, um, so yeah, so, and that was, yeah, it was a good bit of the chapter was this, was like I said, these, these metaphors around um, equating some of the core tenets of Buddhism to this uh, work with the buffaloes, tending water buffaloes. Um so then later, um, we meet Rahula briefly, who is the Buddha's son, who we'll find out later that whole backstory again, but he, uh, at this point, has become a new monk as well. So there's kind of a connection there between Rahula and Savasti. So they kind of let Rahula show Savasti around and help him as a, as a brand new novice monk. They're around the same age, so they kind of strike up. It seems like a, what will be a cool friendship. And, you know, it was another kind of metaphor going on is after the talk, um, you know, one of the core practices of the monastics and, and any practitioner is, is walking meditation, which we'll also get more in detail on later, which is a very interesting practice in my you know, a lot of the, well, all the retreats I've been on, they've, they've done some walking meditation. And it's a really interesting practice that I want to get more into. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, it can be a struggle sometimes. You know, a lot of times in an intensive meditation retreat, um, between long hours and periods of sitting meditation, you know, kind of more formal sitting meditation, whether in a chair or usually like traditionally cross-legged uh, on a cushion on the floor in that traditional meditation pose all of us have probably seen in pictures or statues or whatever. Um, but but anyway, the walking meditation is interesting. A lot of Westerners, and I think I've fallen into this trap, it's almost like the, they would you would do periods of walking meditation in between these periods of you know, longer sitting, and it can almost seem like it's a break, and that's okay. I think that sometimes it is seen that way, but I think what is difficult about it, it is a nice sort of break to stretch your legs and, and from the long hours of sitting, um, for sure, but I think sometimes, I notice with me, my mind would wander uh, during those during those periods, so that 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 was something I had to watch out for as to not, uh, you know, let that, you know, to, there's a danger, I think, sometimes in just letting that be a period to just kind of take a break. And it is a very, it can be a very profound practice. There were moments 
that I would get deeper into these practice that I would it would um, be just as profound as the sitting practice. And that's another kind of theme we'll get into is it's kind of a misnomer, I think, sometimes, and even me as a when I was a new practitioner, to think that the sitting meditation is the real thing. That's the stuff. That's that's the real practice. But what you learn and, and what Thich Nhat Hanh, our author here, an amazing teacher of this book, what he what I like about his tradition especially is they seem to accentuate everyday life as a practice, you know cooking, walking meditation, how you speak to someone, how you enter a room. Um, it's not so much like some Zen traditions, it seems, are more about that, you know, just sit all day, kind of like that's the focus. The other stuff is is obviously important, but it's more about that, that sitting formal practice. And I've done that before, for sure. I get into that mode where it's all about this, you know, I got to sit for 45 minutes and that's my practice but the rest of the day is other thing you know so I think uh, you know it's like I, what I really like about Thich Nhat Hanh is he, he seems to make it about um, you know everything's the practice and you get that here with that like I said intending water buffaloes or whatever it may be can be the practice so Um, yeah, so anyway, that's the, uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a big chunk of the chapter. And then we get to, yeah, and, and I'd also like to say here on the, so basically after this, uh, Savasti goes on, does walking meditation and he, he really right away as he's walking alone, which I think also is another metaphor. He's, he's sort of now he's abandoned his family. Well, not abandoned, but he's left his family. But he's feeling a little bit of sadness, and he's feel like he's missing home. And he feels kind of alone, and he's walking. He's doing walking meditation alone. And I think that's a great symbol of, you know, when you're doing this, anytime you do anything that's, you know, uh, outside your comfort zone, however big or small, that it's going to be a challenge, and there's going to be periods where it's not easy. And it's that classic hero's journey as well. It's a great metaphor of like you're walking the path alone. And ultimately, mindfulness practice, meditation practice, Buddhist practice. Ultimately, you know, you are walking alone in some sense that you are going to have to do some of this, a lot of this yourself. Of course, one of the three jewels of of Buddhism is the Sangha, is the community, is, is practicing a community. That's, of course, a huge part of it. But ultimately, there's also a lot of this you're going to have to do on your own. And so I thought that was a great metaphor that, that you know, Savasti's out on his own now. And so as he's walking this meditate, he's doing this walking meditation by himself, I thought that was a great symbol of, you know, now he's out in the world. He's no longer with his family. Uh, and he's also this transition where he was sort of, even at his young age, he was the head of his family as both of his parents died young. And he essentially from age 10 or 11 was in charge of his younger siblings. And now he's going from that world, so not only missing his family, but now he's gone from the leader to now the 
brand new student. And I think that's interesting. And I think we've probably all had times in our lives where we feel like that. You go from a comfort zone, a place of knowing what's going on and, uh, you know, some, some, perhaps some skill and experience in something and then going to this other world, which I love. Like I said, this, this story is so great and, and, and multi-layered because it is a trans, it is a classic hero's journey that we're going to see the Buddha go through. And then also our Buffalo boy, which I think works as a very great, a great example of a novice, you know, as the reader. I think I, a lot of this book, you, especially the beginning, you, you do look as a, a student of, of uh, a practitioner and a student, um, that you do look at, you do kind of um, view it through the eyes of Savasti, our young Buffalo boy. So I just thought that was great. And then he and Rahula have a connection around that because Rahula, the Buddha's son, and we're, again, we're going to learn that backstory later. He, you know, he leaves, uh, he just recently left his family, which is the Buddha's family. So he left his grandfather, his mother, um, his friends and whatever, um, from their kingdom to follow his father, the Buddha. And so he's kind of, you know, he, he has this connection, which I really like with Savasti about, yeah, I miss home too. I remember, you know, meditating and, and doing these practices in the beginning as a novice monk and not knowing what the heck I'm doing and missing my family. Um, so I thought that was a great little connection between those two. Um, and then we also get a, and again, these first few chapters, it's, it's really cool how Thich Nhat Hanh kind of weaves in these lessons, and then he also weaves in um, introducing some of our new characters, or, or some of our characters that are going to be really re- relevant throughout the story. So towards the end of the chapter, we get introduced to Ananda, who's a uh, very famous disciple of the Buddha. Uh, I believe he's the Buddha's cousin. Um I believe Rahula is telling our Buffalo boy about him and basically that, you know, he's, he becomes essentially the Buddha's right-hand man and he is kind of legendary in having this amazing memory and this ability to recall um, any and all of the Buddha's stories and his lessons and his, you know, the... Um, the foundational practices and philosophies of Buddhism that we have even to this day. So you get a little introduction into Ananda. They kind of think of him as like the storyteller, the scribe, the, the first assistant to the Buddha. And we'll get a lot more of him later, but we, it was a cool little introduction there. And I thought of that as a symbol too, like Ananda being this conduit that you get all the Buddha's stories, you know, through, or, or a lot of the Buddha's stories through. And it's like, I don't know, I thought that was a cool symbol that like Thich Nhat Hanh is kind of a conduit. You know, we're all can be a conduit to this practice and to the Buddha's teachings. And this book, you know, and even my little tiny podcast that I have no idea if anyone's listening, but I don't care because I enjoy this practice and this is in an odd way this podcast is a part of my practice just to 
it's a fun way and an interesting way for me to dig deeper into one of my favorite books and this deeper, you know, get a deeper or at least uh, different angles on the story of the Buddha's life through this book. And, you know, just it's always fun for me to dig a little deeper and hopefully a few people come along with me. And, you know, it's one of these stories, you know, maybe if you practice meditation, you know a little bit about the Buddha's story, but this book and the, uh, a great number of chapters, but it's like very, like I said, very light, easy reading. So I hope some people will come along because it is great to get a little more detail. You know, you get these, a lot of the Buddha, uh, stories and, you know, for a Western audience, for an American audience, especially, a lot of it's just little bits and pieces, you know, it's a little blurb here or a famous quote or the, you know, uh, a statue you've seen of the Buddha or, you know, something from a movie. But it's like, this is this, what I like is you get a little more into the historical figure. And again, some of it, you know, I don't know how much of it is exact, um, as far as like historical record. But again, it doesn't, what I love, one of the things I love about Buddhism and this story is it doesn't really matter as much how 100% scientifically accurate this is. I mean, this story, not to get off on a tangent, but I already have. This story, you know, in religion in general, when you talk about, uh, some people in the West, religion's a dirty word, but when you're talking about religion or spirituality, to me, it's a way to live your life. It's a it's a some guide a, a guidepost or a you know some methods in this case a practice. I really like that word practice. You're going to hear me use it a lot. But basically, a way to live your life. That's what I think of when I think of spirituality or religion or faith or whatever you want to call it. For whichever you practice, whether you're you know. Um, sort of a secular Buddhist, you know, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a Muslim, whether you're Jewish, whether you're uh, whatever, you know, even more scientific-based, atheist, agnostic, whatever, just whatever kind of... To me, everyone has sort of a spirituality or religion in a sense of something, something that, they're wor- that they worship or something that guides their life. Now, it doesn't have to be religious at all. It could be sports or, I'm, you know, yoga, of course, has religious uh, connection, but, but anything, you know, sports or exercise or um, write, you're a writer, you're a dancer, um, you're an engineer, you're a scientist, and some, so some sort of, for most people, a core, a code, an ethic, a something to guide your life. So I think of religion that way, or spirituality, or again, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a way to live your life. And I think of science as just how the world is. So they're two different things. You know, I always thought of it this way, like, you know, judging an artist, for example, you know, judging an artist with a math test, that's kind of the matter. Speaking of symbolism, there's a symbol, there's a metaphor. I kind of just ran. It's not. It's kind of clunky, but I came up with it. So basically, essentially, if judging religion or spirituality with science is like judging an artist with a math test, it doesn't really add up. It's not. It's it's apples and oranges. Um, 
you know, modern science essentially came about 500 years ago. And when you're talking about, say, Buddhism or Christianity, we're talking a Buddhism 2,500, 2,600 years ago, I believe, uh, and, and Christianity, you know, a little over 2,000 years ago, that, that, you know, predates science by, you know, thousands of years. And so now you've got, you know, so to try to judge it by science, I guess, is my point. It's kind of a, it doesn't really, it's not the same thing. Again, I don't think it serves the same purpose. Uh, I think of, and, and what draws me to these stories and other religious practices and spirituality in general is it is a way to live your life and hopefully in a better way. So, and I, and I honestly, I think you can merge it with science and they're blending them together very beautifully right now with Buddhist practice and meditation. And they're doing these, um, you know, there's a lot of studies and, and neuroscience now around uh, meditation practice and so on. So I think we're, it, it, we're, those worlds are coming together in a beautiful way, especially through uh, mindfulness, meditation, Buddhism. So anyway, I know that was a bit of a tangent, but there you go. Um, and then, and at the very end of this chapter, I wanted to mention that Savasti, um, you know, it's like, it was a simple little sentence. And there's a lot of simple but profound, very subtle but profound, uh, um, you know, paragraphs and sections of this book I really love. And Thich Nhat Hanh is great at that. He, he can make these simple things so deeply profound. Um, and very subtle, but at the end, it's just this brief little sentence about how Savasti, you know, starts sweeping, I believe, sweeping the leaves off the pathway. And I just thought of that as a symbolism, too, of like, okay, this is his new job. Like, he's kind of like, they just did this talk about the, the, the tending the water buffaloes, but now Savasti is, you know, he's a new monk and he's got, you know, his, his work which is also a meditation, and he's, he's now working for the community. And in this, that's like that little sentence, the very last sentence of the chapter is like, you know, he, his new job is now these chores for the, for the community, for the Sangha, and that's his new family in a sense. So it's just kind of this cool transition uh, from, from uh, the buffalo boy to the novice monk uh, and, and having work. Be, be kind of the other theme of this um, of this chapter so so yeah so that's our uh, chapter two and as before I'm going to do this little exercise that sometimes I'll fall on my face but I'm going to try it anyway of the uh, sacred reading practice of Lectio Divina which I've loosely borrowed from the Christian tradition I believe and so basically, I'm going to pick a random, very, very random uh, uh, selection of a sentence or a couple sentences from this chapter, and then break it down in four separate parts. And again, this is something if you're reading along, or even if you're not reading this book, just in general, it's cool to do, and uh, to kind of take it a little deeper. Um, and sometimes it's just a cool thought exercise. Sometimes, it, like I said, it's it's a, it's a way for you to you know, just kind of get out of your normal, okay, I just read this chapter, now I'm going to read the next one, but kind of dig a little deeper. And it's just, I enjoy that, and, and hopefully some people will be doing that on their own as well. 
just to, just to find a little bit deeper meaning in some of this. So let's go ahead and find a section here. Um, all right, I'm just gonna pick one. Gonna pick one at random. Let's see what we got here. All right. All right. So this is. Um, here we go. These were the words to hold on. These were words to hold in one's heart. Of course, there were terms such as six sense organs, four noble truths, four establishments of mindfulness, which Savasti did not yet understand. So this is uh, so the first level of Lectio Divina is basically what, what literal action or what is going on in the story. So really this, this part here is, uh, I believe the, the Buddha just finished this, the, the talk uh, about the tending water buffaloes and, and, and incorporating some of these core Buddhist principles in that talk. Um, and this is basically uh, Savasti sort of taking in, that, all right, I've heard these terms, but I have no idea what they mean. So that's kind of where we're at in the story. Um, and so the, the second level, and this is speaking of a chapter on symbolism, a second level of Lectio Divina, essentially what's the metaphor or symbolism um, that, that calls to mind here? And I just think of like, you know, when you're learning something new, it's just like you're getting these brief, you're getting these bits and pieces, you know? It's like, I don't know, the metaphor that comes to mind right now is an iceberg where you think, you know, you see maybe one-tenth or 10% of the iceberg sticking out of the water, visible to you. Um, but most of the iceberg is actually buried underneath the water, hidden from our view. Um, and that basically, I think in this situation, is a great metaphor for, you know, the Buddha throughout these terms, uh, and even to some, you know, new, even somewhat experienced meditators. Maybe they, they from a scientific point of view, they're kind of into meditation, or they don't really have a connection to Buddhism, or the spiritual or aspects or the deeper principles of Buddhism, they may not know some of this, you know, six sense organs, four noble truths, four establishments of mindfulness. So it's allowing, it's kind of, you know, it's that iceberg of like, you're here, here's a little, you know, I'll give you these terms and kind of explain them in a way that's simplified through metaphor and symbolism, but it, 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 points to like, hey, there's a lot more here. There's a lot of iceberg underneath the water that you don't even know yet, and we're going to dig deeper into that later. So it's like this little teaser, this little iceberg for you. So that's kind of the metaphor that comes to mind. And then later in the book, and as you dig deeper into Buddhist practice, you will you know, dig into these a little further. So uh, the third level of Lectio Divina is what this metaphor recalls from or what this, I'm sorry, what this uh, passage recalls, perhaps from my personal experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, in a similar way, I do feel like I, you know, when I, 
you know, I first started meditating myself around, I think I was 22 maybe. Uh, so I've been meditating a while, somewhat consistently. And I do remember, as I dug a little deeper, I did buy a few books on Buddhism as kind of being one of the core um, traditions that, that meditation kind of will spawn from and, and at least at least sort of I think dug a little deeper into the into the meditation part of things and I remember reading kind of in these books some of this stuff that was a little bit especially at that time probably over my head I didn't have a lot of experience with Buddhism so I just remember those first few books that were you know they probably weren't beginner books and um, you know and even some of it kind of from the the, the, the Pali canon uh, you know, some of the, the, the core original or, or um, I guess, most ancient uh, scriptures from the Buddha uh, that I just were, they were a little over my head. And, and then some from, uh, I think, the Shobogenzo, which is uh, uh, also from the Zen tradition. And um, I believe from Dogen, who's a very famous Zen a Buddhist a writer, and teacher and and it just yeah it was a little bit over my head and uh and still is in some ways so that that's what calls i call to mind that as as savasi here is like i don't really know what all this means yet so um uh so that's what it calls to, to me personally in my in my past and then the fourth level is, is what does it bring to mind for me in the future going forward this this uh perhaps a takeaway and uh, the, the one thing that kind of stands out in that sense is also like, it's not only that Savasi didn't understand these yet, but in the first sentence here, it said, these were words to hold in one's heart. And I find that very interesting that there's, there, there, to me, it, it, it's a reminder that, you know, to really learn anything and to grow, there first has to be that that connection, that vibrancy, that energy that comes from like, I'm really into this. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to have that. It's like I read somewhere, I don't know the exact quote, but like 80% of, of learning or doing anything is inspiration. Like you have to have that, that get up and go, if you will. Whether it's about Buddhist practice or meditation or yoga or your family or your job, exercise, whatever. And that's so true because I remember the times in my life, I mean, once you have that, that fervor, I guess you could say, that, 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 um, that jolt of energy to do something, I mean, that's, that's a big part of the struggle is, is, is conquered, I think, with that because now you've got the energy. You, know, you got to have the motivation, basically behind something. So that, that's what it, that sentence, these were words to hold in one's heart. It's like they got to be in your heart first. You got to, even if you don't know what the hell's going on fully, it's like you got to have that, that, um, that reason, you know, that, uh, that, that purpose, that life with a purpose. Um, and that's really a, a great reminder for me. You know, you, you do have to hold it in your heart before you can really get anywhere. You know, it's like 
without that motivation, it's going to be really hard to accomplish anything in spiritual practice or, like I said, in personal relationships or physical health, exercise. I mean, I'm just thinking of exercise. It's like, man, if you don't have the motivation, whether you're uh, training for a marathon or I want to lose 10 pounds or I want to fit into this uh, these pants or even if it's trivial, like if you don't have a motivation behind it, you're just not going to do it. Um, and something to kind of whether, and even sometimes like a competition, uh, of like, you know, I, I want to, you know, or, or another one is being part of a community, uh, which is, which is, you're going to see is a, is going to be an ongoing theme throughout this book and, and study of the Buddha's life is, it is about community. So if you have that support system around you, um, and in this in this case, I think that holds that holds true because, you know, again, Savasi doesn't know what the heck this stuff means yet, really. But he holds it in his heart, and he also sees the community uh, of monastics in this case thriving and doing well, and he sees the Buddha and and in and right before this passage, the Buddha is, he, he's sort of locked on to his his just demeanor and he and so he knows there's something there again he doesn't know the ins and outs he doesn't know the science as we talked about earlier he doesn't know the science yet he just knows that in my heart i know this is good and you know i'll, I'll fill in those details later but i've got that he's curious you know there's a mystery there's a curiosity and i think that's directly connected to a motivation so so that's it for lectio um I really appreciate anyone listening, everyone listening, um, and I will be back with chapter three.